wisdom and turn to the Old Testament book of Ruth. Last week we began our study through this great little book of the Old Testament, and Naomi is in ashes. Ashes are the symbol of brokenness and mourning and grief and loss. Naomi is covered with ashes, isn't she? Last week we saw that we are free to be honest when we are covered with ashes. That in this church, when you're a mess, you don't have to pretend you're not. But now I want us to walk over these next few weeks through this narrative, through this great story, and let's see what happens to Naomi in the weeks to come. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Machlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So far the reading of God's word. Israel is a mess. At the beginning of this book, Israel is a mess. How do we know that? Well, the first verse tells us a lot. Life is hard. Why? Because there's a famine in the land. Now, if you lived in Russia or if you lived in Egypt and you wanted to know why there was a famine in the land, you would go to the Weather Channel and you'd turn on the Weather Channel 3,000 years ago And they would tell you about the air currents and where the movement of moisture is across certain places and where it has not been. And that would explain why there is a famine in that land. But in ancient Israel, we are told that actually the weather is affected by the obedience of the Jewish people. Isn't that true? Do you remember in Deuteronomy 28? Do you remember back in Leviticus 26 when God says, during this special time when my people dwell in a land and my tabernacle is there and the land must be holy, God says there will be blessing, blessing upon blessing. Your crops will yield in abundance. Your children will be healthy. Your land will be at peace if you obey All my commands. But if you disobey, 
if you disobey nation of Israel, what will happen? The sky will dry up and become as bronze. The earth will be like bronze. Leviticus 26 says, if you will not listen to me and will not do these commandments, I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. When's the last time you heard Sam Champion on the Weather Channel explain a drought (laughs) by quoting Leviticus 26? Probably a long time. But you see, we are told... In Israel, there's a famine in the land, and so there is indication to us that all is not well, and that, in fact, the people have turned their hearts away from God. Now, there's the second clue that's very clear. It says in the first line, in the days when the judges ruled. What did we learn about that? That by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, every man does what is right in his own eyes. Man does what feels good to him, what seems right to him. And, of course, the book of Proverbs says there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end leads to death. How often we fool ourselves by hardening our hearts and saying, I'm going to go my way. Well, apparently there was a man named Elimelech. Elimelech is not happy about the famine And even though God has made abundantly clear that my people should dwell in my land and seek my face, Elimelech decides to pack up his wife, Naomi, and his boys, Machlon and Kilion, and head to Moab. And Elimelech and Naomi, they do what's right in their own eyes. It makes perfect sense to them to leave the family of God there, to abandon that that group that was their church family, as it were, and to go into the world and seek their fortune, and maybe things will be better there. Self-directed, they lose their moral compass. And just as, as Israel in that day planted A land flowing with milk and honey is a republication, as it were, of the Garden of Eden, where God says, Obey me, Adam and Eve, and the lush beauty of Eden will be all yours, but disobey me, and you will be cast out, and you shall die. And so again, Israel is in rebellion against the Lord. You know, for Adam and Eve, what? It was desirous to the eyes, it looked good to their eyes, it made good sense. To them to disobey God. And in the time of the judges, people are like Adam and Eve, everybody doing what is good in their own eyes. Have you ever heard someone say, follow your instincts, do what feels right. Look out for number one. Times change. Rules change. So Elimelech packs up his family. He does what is right in his own eyes. 
Naomi, in some sense, is complicit in this. They go down where? To where do they travel? They go to Moab. And if you're an Israelite, all of a sudden a red flag goes up in your mind. Oh, no, not Moab. Do you know why? What do you know about Moab? Well, if you read through the Old Testament, you remember that Moab is... The Moabites were the hillbilly cousins of the Israelites. They were the hillbilly cousins because... Moab came out of an incestuous relationship of uh, Lot and his oldest daughter. And there's bad blood between the cousins. Remember, as Israel comes out of Egypt, does Moab help their cousins out? In fact, uh, they come against them, and, and King Balak, remember, he hires Balaam, to bring a curse upon Israel out of the Moabites. And, of course, God overturns that. And it's, it's actually quite a humorous story. And God overturns that and frustrates the Moabites. But then by the time you get to Numbers 25, the Moabite women, it says, seduce the Moabite men with their feminine wiles. And they engage in sexual immorality And these women then say, come and worship our gods. Chemosh, the bloodthirsty deity, come. And sex and power and blood mixed together come in this this orgy of wickedness. And the men fall. And Israel is corrupted. And even in chapter 3 of the book of Judges, in the time of Eglon, the, the Moabites for a period oppress Israel in their state of oppression. There is bad blood between Israel and Moab. Elimelech, what are you thinking? And then in verse 4, every Israelite would know it's disastrous because what happens to the sons? The sons it's explicit, marry Moabite wives. It doesn't just say they got married, but again and again it says Moabite, Moabite, Moabite wives. And when we read through the, and studied through the book of Nehemiah, do you remember at the end of the book of Nehemiah, uh, when in the final reforms that Nehemiah gives to Israel, um, he says He speaks about the great evil and act of treachery against God by marrying foreign women. What is this? What happens to Christians when they marry non-Christians? What happens to Christians when they marry non-Christians? Peter gives us some hope. The Apostle Peter says, especially to women who, Christian women who marry non-Christian men, it says, by the beauty of your inner spirit, you may win them. And I praise God how many times I have seen the beauty of the Holy Spirit dwelling in a Christian spouse so attract the non-Christian and lead them into the family of God, into the worship of the Lord, and into the joy of the fellowship of the saints. 
But most of the time, most of the time, that ain't the story. Most of the time, the hardness of heart does not edify the Christian spouse, but slowly becomes a burden and wears them down. And they try and they go to church by themselves and they raise the kids to know the Lord by themselves and they're thankful for the Sunday school teachers and they're thankful for the pastors and they love the youth pastor, but the spouse, the spouse mocks or the spouse sabotages any attempt at discipleship and the suffering in that family is great, and the Christian spouse's heart withers. That's why Paul says, he gets real serious in Corinthians when he talks about what does fellowship, does light have to do with darkness, you know, in his section on marriage. But it seems right in your own eyes. We're in love. We're in love. And they are so sexy, those Moabite women. And they do what's right in their own eyes, and they pay a terrible price for it. And so here is Naomi. Sin complicates her world. You know, Jesus tells a story about this. Jesus, Jesus, who's the greatest teacher who ever lived, tells the story of the prodigal son who takes his inheritance and has a grand old time with his money out into the foreign land where he squanders it all in great living. Oh, life is good! Until the money runs out and he's living with the pigs and his belly is aching with hunger. And what does Jesus say in that story? He says, then he came to his senses. You know, one of the hardest things about being a Christian is admitting it when you messed up? Or am I the only person that has a hard time admitting when I really blew it? Now I see some heads nodding. You know, it's a good thing, not a bad thing, when you come to your senses. When God says, oh my, you, the, 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 your, the, your life is a mess, your world is a mess, and, and in many ways the choices you made are coming back to haunt you. Naomi... And that son of the prodigal came back to his father, and we are told, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. Who does that sound like? It's not just the prodigal son, it's Naomi, isn't it? I'm now perishing here, no means of support. And then the prodigal son says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and, let, and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Oh, my friends. Chapter 1, verse 2, Naomi, we are told, does something. What is verse 6? This is point number 2 in your sermon outline. Verse 6 tells us that Naomi becomes a pilgrim, and Naomi gets up 
and returns. She heads back to her homeland, back to her covenant community, back to her church, back to her God. She comes to her senses, and she hears some good news. What's the good news in chapter 6? Oh, this is one of those Old Testament moments where the gospel is in the Old Testament. The gospel of Jesus Christ is in the Old Testament. It says she hears something. She's working in the fields of Moab trying to get some grain, and she hears what? God has visited His people. And given them food. Friends, this is more than just the farm stand is open. God has visited His people. In a few weeks, we begin Advent, and then we celebrate Christmas. And what is it that fills the church of Jesus Christ around the world with joy as we cycle through that every year? Now, in this church, it's every week, but there is this sense of joy every year. Why? The mystery of the incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God has visited His people. This is the gospel. Do you hear it? There, Naomi hears it in the fields of Moab. God has visited His people. One day, one day in heaven she will remember. This is why Jesus came into the world. He visited His people and He not only gave them food. Yes, Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. He gave His people food as He feeds the 5,000. But Jesus Himself is the bread of heaven. And he says, Moses gave your father's bread in the wilderness that came down from heaven, the manna, but I am the true bread who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And I don't know, but as Naomi is now awakened, God has visited his people. And there's food there. She is like a magnet drawn back out of Moab, back into the community that she knew and loved, back to the worship of the Lord she knew and loved, and she arises and she goes. This, my friends, is a picture of repentance. And the Old Testament is filled with these images, these pictures that are pregnant with the New Testament realities of the gospel. She gets up in verse 6 and she goes. Repentance, there's two parts to repentance. We know this, don't you? The first part is leaving Moab and turning back to the Lord. I don't know where you have gone to Moab, but you have. And I know I have. Where have you compromised and become like the world? Where have you said, I'm just going to do what's right in my own eyes. All the wisdom of the world all around me is telling me how to live. I guess I'll just go with the flow. And that flow has taken you to Moab. Into the world of Chemosh into the world of violence and sensuality and selfishness. The first part of repentance is turning. The Greek word is metanoia. It means to change direction and to change of, a change of mind. And that's what we see in verse 6. Does, does, does Naomi have it all together? She does not yet have it all together. 
And I'm telling you today, you don't have to have it all together to begin a life of repentance. You don't. Not in this church. Look around you. We're all needy and struggling. But you turn. Martin Luther said the Christian life is a race of repentance daily. There is the initial repentance. If if you've never come to Christ, there's that initial turning and beholding and hearing the Lord has visited this earth in Jesus Christ and gives food for the soul in Jesus Christ. Turn to Him and live. But repentance is not about self-improvement or moral fortitude. Repentance is seeing the mess of Moab and hearing the good news of mercy. Seeing the cross of Jesus Christ where He bled and died for you. Hearing the welcome of Jesus Christ. And as you hear that, your heart is softened. And you come afresh with new energy and power. Martin uh, Hahn often says, the soil of your heart is changed by the cross. He's right. The soil of your heart is changed as you hear the good news and the mercy of God. And then you walk back home. And you come home like the prodigal son came home. And what do you find? A stern father shaking his finger at you? Not for a moment. What do you find? A welcome. The fatted calf killed for you. The Father loves you so much. He loves you so much. And you enter the rest of the homeland again. Hebrews 4. It says, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. He's talking about Old Testament people who had the gospel of Jesus Christ preached to them in shadow form. But it didn't benefit all of them. It only benefited those who believed. So I ask you today, do you believe? Do you believe that God has visited this earth and gives food for your soul in Jesus Christ? Only those who believe enter into the rest. And then verse 11 of Hebrews, it says, it's a strive to enter that rest. And I love this because how do you strive to rest? Strive to rest? Well, the trip for Naomi is going to be hard and long. It won't be easy. And the trip um, in repentance, putting off the the sins, getting away from those Moabite women that would seduce you, those Moabite men who would want to haunt you, the gods that you did give your heart to. So there's a, there's a, it's a hard path. You have to strive to rest. I don't quite get it, but that's what it says. And the key is faith. The key is faith. That's what Hebrews tells us right here. Faith, those who believe. Come into the house of God. Then something so strange happens that any reader in the Old Testament would, be, would, would step back. And what is that? It's that Ruth the Moabitess says, I'm coming with you. Wait, Naomi, 
I won't leave you. And we have this magnificent confession of loyalty, of what's called chesed love that we'll look at next week. But we have this confession of love and loyalty to Naomi and a confession of faith in Jehovah. And she comes to God, our God. And in her profession of faith, she is saved and ushered into the covenant community. It is so exquisite. But how does this happen? How can this be? A Moabite coming in. After all, don't you know what it says in Deuteronomy 23? The law of God expressly forbids imperfect people, illegitimate people, and foreign people. Very explicit. Listen to this in Deuteronomy 23.6. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Hmm. No one born of a forbidden union, literally illegitimate union, may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Now verse 3. Get this. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. This is astounding. But the holy law of God forbids those who are imperfect. The eunuch. You know what a eunuch is? It's described in verse 1. Can't come in. Illegitimate grandparents. We just started our membership orientation class today. Did I ask, there are about 15 people there, did I ask any of you to bring your family tree next week so we can go back 10 generations just to make sure? I didn't do that. If I thought Deuteronomy 23 still applied to the New Covenant community, I would have. But then it says, no Moabite. But the Old Testament hints that the Gentiles will come. And in in, in the book of Esther, many, many foreigners become Jews. And in the prophecy of Isaiah, it says Israel will be a light for the Gentiles. And people will come from the north and the south and the east and the west. And they will come. And in in Isaiah, he says, he says, He says, you will come in and you will be made clean. Isaiah 56.3. Look at that in your sermon outline. Isaiah 56.3. This is the most astounding verse of the Old Testament as far as I'm concerned. As he prophesies the day of the Lord, he says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. What? 
And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree, which means I cannot enter in. In the day of the Lord, let them not say that. And when Jesus Christ is born, old Simeon takes the baby in his arms and he says, Behold, a light to lighten the Gentiles is here in my arms. And as Jesus walks this earth, he touches the leper and blesses him. And he speaks to the Samaritan woman and blesses her and gives her the water of life. And Peter, Peter, Peter discovers, this good kosher boy discovers that he can no longer call these Gentile goyim unclean. For they, when they come by faith in Jesus, they belong to him. And Peter goes on, as we just didn't keep reading, and at the end of chapter 10, and he preaches through Jesus Christ has found forgiveness of sins. All who believe in him and Cornelius and his household are baptized and they believe. How does this happen? Ruth, how can you come in? And the answer is that you and Ruth come inside because Jesus went outside. You think about this. Jesus, who was in heaven in all his glory, left heaven to come to this broken, miserable, fallen world outside the holy palace of God in the highest heaven. And then Jesus ministers to those outside, the Samaritan woman and the eunuch. And then Jesus is cut off like the scapegoat who the sins of the people are placed upon him and he's cast out into the wilderness with the sins of the people. Jesus is sent outside and he bleeds and dies on Golgotha outside the city wall for you and you and you and for me so that you can come inside family of God. This is the gospel for you. Do you believe it? Do you hear his welcoming voice today? If you've gone to Moab, I have good news for you. God has visited his people and he brings them bread. Come and return to him. If you have never, if you've never received Jesus, Today's the day. Have you heard? She was in the fields of Moab and she heard. Have you heard? What do you do? You simply surrender your life to him by faith and you say, Lord Jesus, I receive you this day. I am yours and you are mine. And as we come to the Lord's Supper, can you miss, can you miss The promise for the people of God, the church of God. This promise is bread. This promise is the fruit of the vine. The blood of Christ and the body of Christ given for you. If you're not a believer, if you're not somebody who has made his profession of faith in Christ, we invite you to just pass this. It's no sin to just pass it by. But we invite you to ponder what we say here today. But for the believer, 
For those who are disciples of Jesus, come now and eat. Come to the feast. Admire the feast. Admire the feast that He has set for you and partake. Let's pray. I would invite the elders to come forward. Oh, Lord, we would be like Naomi, and we would be like Ruth. Our repentance is not perfect. It is insufficient. And yet we turn. We tell you that too often we just do what's right in our own eyes, and we are sorry. Forgive us. We even invite you to show us our folly as a kindness to us, Lord. Show us our folly as a kindness to us. That we may turn and return. And we pray for those of us who at least feel like eunuchs, that we just feel impotent in this world, broken apart from you. We are like Moabites, far away on the outside. But today, I have heard an invitation that I may come in through the one who was cast out, that I may come. And I do receive you now, Lord Jesus. And if you've just prayed that prayer, I want to know about it so that we can encourage you how to feed on Christ. Let me know. Now, as we come to the Lord's table,